是台湾人，台湾人，台湾人。Welcome to Taiwan Yuan, your global community of Taiwanese makers, innovators, and advocates. I'm your co-host Cindy, and today joining me as a co-host is none other than my own cousin Stephanie Ng. Stephanie works in venture funding for mission-driven companies in New York. Steffi, are you excited to be here? Yes, I am. So much for inviting me to join you to co-host. I've been super excited about this particular podcast. And I've been dying to co-host with you, so thanks for asking me. I really love what you've built here. I love that you're spotlighting our community now more than ever. It's super important. So thank you so much for doing this podcast. Of course, I'm just happy I have an extra listener in you. <laughs> yeah. So Steffi and I will be meeting with Amy Fan, who is the co-founder of Twenty Eight Health. Twenty Eight Health is a startup that makes it super easy and cheap. For women to get birth control pills, morning after pills, abortion pills, and herpes treatments, and this season, as you know, is all about Taiwanese trailblazers. Amy is definitely one of them. She works tirelessly to increase and maintain sexual and reproductive healthcare access to all women in America. With 11 million women in the U.S. who are completely uninsured on health services. In only 28 states mandating sex education, 28 Health is incredibly important and potentially life-changing. Yeah, crazy times. So join us, learn the topic of women's health with us as we get to know Amy's story and her share of challenges and accomplishments that she's experienced through her work at 28 Health. Hi, Amy. Tell us about yourself and your connection to Taiwan. Well, Cindy, so nice to be here. My name's Amy. I'm the co-founder of Twenty Health. We're a mission-driven women's health startup focused on increasing access to underserved communities, mainly working with Medicaid. And in terms of my connection to Taiwan, I was actually born in Taipei, and I stayed there until I was in grade one. Then my family immigrated from Taipei to Vancouver. But growing up, I was really lucky to still be able to go back fairly often to visit family and still feel connected with that culture. Vancouver is so nice. Okay, but focusing back on Twenty Eight Health, how do you think Twenty Eight Health is? Changing the landscape of sexual health and reproductive health in the U.S. Yeah, great question. I think there's been a lot of really interesting innovations when it comes to healthcare, particularly across Medicare as well as commercial insurance. And I think one of the interesting components about the U.S. healthcare system is that there are a ton of innovations, but from a Consumer perspective, it can be really difficult to navigate, and in some ways, there's a lot of different tiers of care that is out there. And unfortunately, a lot of the innovations have been more focused on people with higher ability to pay or programs that Medicare that typically have better reimbursement. So, unfortunately, I think Medicaid has been something that's often forgotten, but it's incredibly important. For Medicaid women alone, seven hundred billion is spent on an annual basis. So it is. A very important program in terms of people being able to access care, and we should bring the same level of innovation to folks on Medicaid as folks that might be using commercial insurance or Medicare.、Mm. Well, thanks for sharing that. I do think it's such a noble mission, of course, to focus on the forgotten segment and help lower their barrier to entry, like Stephanie was saying earlier. But 
I guess I do know you personally, and I remember you were going off to do your MBA to Haas at Berkeley. And then the next I heard you were doing this very cool startup. And I always wanted to ask you, what prompted you to start 28 Health? Was it a personal story or kind of a coincidence? Yeah, great question. I think it's a bit of both personal and professional coming together. So on the professional side, after graduation, I worked at Bain for a few years and then moved to New York to join a venture studio. The first business I actually led at the venture studio was to create a telemedicine platform for dietitians. So this was back in 2014, early days when it comes to telemedicine. And very quickly, what I realized is that it's very difficult for the economic model to work operating outside of insurance. And unfortunately, with dietitians, most insurance only covers three visits a year. And what dietitians are recommend to their patients is to actually see them once a week. So from a care perspective and affordability perspective, there is a very big gap in between. So ultimately, we actually shut down business down because we couldn't just we couldn't make the economics work. And I moved on to lead a beauty business, which was very different. What I really enjoyed about working in that business is that the beauty industry is very, very consumer centric. Whether it is how you formulate your products and packaging, the online to the unboxing experience, every component of it, we think so deeply about how do we make sure we fit the needs of our users and also fit into their lifestyle, which is so different than the way, unfortunately, we approach healthcare. And I think for me, it was also interesting having grown up in Canada, where when my family first immigrated, my parents were out of in and out of hourly wage roles, but we never had to worry about access to the doctor because of universal healthcare. And mm-hmm. we never had to worry about how to navigate it. It was very easy where essentially you could walk into the majority of clinics in Canada and receive services. That's so true. Yeah. yeah. When I was in the U.S. for the few years, I was so confused not knowing who to go to because I had to look at my insurance and match it to someone who'd take it. Exactly. So you'd have to find a doctor that's in network, that's accepting new patients and has availability when you're able to go. And oftentimes, you know, the most availability is when most of us are working. So my experience was even as someone privileged enough to have employer-sponsored insurance, it was still really hard to get care. And so I think with all these like tidbits, I went back to school Transparently, partly because I felt a little bit burnt out from my startup experience. That's and <laughs> wanted to learn more about the U.S. healthcare system because it, it was so fascinating that some of the most cutting edge innovations when it comes to healthcare treatments, when it comes to R&D of pharmaceuticals comes out of the U.S., yet access to care can be so difficult. And that's kind of what brought me to going back to school and ultimately doing more exploration there brought me to 28 Health. That's amazing. I love that. I mean, as an American, it I can sympathize and agree with how tough it is to get access. The amount of, you know, encyclopedia thick papers that they mail you that you have yeah. to review and you're like, is there something I'm supposed to do with this or just save it and do you throw it away or not? It is, it is quite daunting. I always thought that it was part of like growing up and adulting, but realize it's not, it's an American problem for sure. And that it's unfortunate that we have to face this. So I think it, it you know, I, I was looking at your website and I love that you have the, how to read your insurance card. Like that was something that mm. I, 
took me time. I, I remember going to the doctor and asking them, is this the code that I show you? Like, <laughs> and so it's, it's super helpful that you, you make it so that people don't feel like they can't, they're alone and, and because it can, can be very daunting. One of the reasons why K50 invests in healthcare is because health and medical bills are like the number one cause for bankruptcy. Yeah. Um, oh. And it's incredibly sad because it doesn't have to be that way at all. There's plenty of countries that operate like Canada with universal health and it, and people can live long and healthy lives and not be afraid to to go to the hospital or call a doctor. So I think it's an interesting like inflection point for you to have come to the U.S. and you're like, what the heck is going on here? <laughs> How do I help fix this? Because it can be fixed. So that leads me to ask like, you guys, you and your co-founder started a company, you lived through the pandemic, you lived through a crazy time with startups were like raising tons of money. And now we're in a time where people are not raising money, this huge competition for talent. What are the types of challenges you and your co-founder are facing now, whether it's, you know, as a startup or just like someone operating in this environment? Yeah, yeah. It's really interesting reflecting back on when we started. And of course, we had no idea that the pandemic was going to happen and have such a tailwind when it comes to telemedicine. I think one of the other pieces for us, for better or worse, was that it was never super easy for us to fundraise because we were focused on Medicaid. Even when we spoke with healthcare investors, a lot of them had a ton of experience when it comes to Medicare or commercial insurance, namely you know, selling employer to employer benefits. But some were still weary of Medicaid, where the trope is often that it's really difficult to make a business work in Medicaid because reimbursement is so low. And also a lot of misconception around Medicaid recipients, where early on we had folks tell us, like, telemedicine's never going to work. How are they going to access internet? And it's like, well, actually, 75% of people from low-income households have smartphones, right? Like, there's I think a lot of sharing of data that's required to really help people fully understand what the opportunity is in Medicaid. And what that means is that we've always had to be quite disciplined when it comes to how we grow because we were never flush with funds. And I think that ended up being helpful for us during times like now where it is hard to fundraise, but we've always operated fairly lean. So we never had to lay anyone off because of kind of spikes in fundraising and dips in lack of cash flow. And then I think the other piece for us when it comes to hiring is because we're so mission driven, there's a lot of folks that are really excited to be a part of our mission. And I think that's really made it a lot easier as well to continue to grow our team. Yeah, I mean, if I was a bright-eyed 22-year-old and I saw a mission-driven company that I would use, I would be just as excited. I think that's that's a fair point when it comes to talent. Given the current climate when it comes to how abortion rights have changed, how every state has decided to take into their own hands how to handle it, like how is that impacting your business and and even that has it made any impacts when it comes to plans for growth? Or- yeah, yeah, that's a great question. I mean, operating in healthcare, regardless of what part of healthcare, is much more regulatory heavy than other industries. 
think particularly with reproductive health, there's been a lot of changes in policy and for better or worse, I think politicalization of some of these policies as well. For us, what we really are focused on is access and access always coming from what is medically advised from clinicians. So we follow ACOG guidelines, we follow the CDC guidelines. We do operate slightly different state by state as well to meet state regulations. And that's both on a telemedicine compliance as well as Medicaid piece as well, because Medicaid is also an interesting program where it is a partnership between the state and the federal government. So states can actually have different, slightly different things when it comes to coverage and eligibility. So in some ways, we were used to operating slightly differently state by state. And this is something that we're just very careful about to make sure we're always adhering to policies of each state. I think specifically um, with the overturn of Roe v. Wade last year, what we saw was actually a lot of people writing in, asking questions about birth control, emergency contraception, and what that difference is that between that versus medication abortion. And I think that really highlights the importance of sexual health education to really help individuals understand, you know, what are the treatments that are out there? What are they appropriate for? When are they not appropriate? Because we had, for example, a huge spike in interest in emergency contraception because people were thinking of either using it as a form of birth control, which is not advisable or really should only be used in emergency purposes, or some people were thinking about it for abortions, which is also not advisable because it's actually not going to impact abortions. So I think for us, it really reaffirmed the need to provide evidence-based content that is also easily digestible to your audience. Yeah, that's such an interesting revelation that came up from all of that because you wouldn't think that that much information was not accessible and that and probably it could be people don't trust the sources, you know, that they're getting the information from. So it's great to hear that they're finding you guys as a one that they can trust and partner with and understand that they you have the best interests. And then there are a lot of really great information out there. But one of the, the statistics that I find pretty surprising is that from a policy perspective, only 18 states mandate reproductive and sexual health education be medically accurate. Yeah. Medically accurate. <laughs> oh, my gosh. When I read that, I mean, tell you, my, I had to pick my jaw up from the floor. <laughs> so what is what are they saying that is not accurate? And you, it's, it's wild. Yeah, yeah. I can't, I can't imagine. Like, and, and the, I mean, I'm probably a product of that. Like, given my age, like going through life not being completely aware of, like, if I know how my own body works, but I just trusted my, you know, homeroom teacher to tell me. Yeah. Uh, so that besides the education piece, do you think there's any challenges that you guys are facing as you build, as you grow, as you you know look to the future? Yeah, I mean, I think broadly the policy side is definitely a part of it where we need to just continue to stay on top of changes of policy. The other piece on the policy side that is more positive is that because of the pandemic, there is so much actually more support and increased scenarios where telemedicine is appropriate. And I think that is actually a really interesting way to think about how do we increase access. I don't think telemedicine will ever fully replace, nor should it fully replace in-person interactions. 
And telemedicine can be really helpful when it comes to providing preventive services, when it comes to triaging. So there's still really useful cases for it. And I think having the reimbursement support now through policies will just help that be more easily adaptable, both for us, but other organizations out there as well. Great. As an actual customer of 20 Health, I loved when I was in the U.S. just for a bit, I didn't have a doctor. You know, and I, I didn't want to get a cab ride to a walk-in, but I needed birth control. So just the fact that, you know, in the app, they ask you these questions and you get your subscription birth control sent to your home. That is just amazing advancement. And thinking back to maybe even teenagers who are just too scared to do, you know, these things in person. I think that is, you know, a different kind of accessibility as well. Yeah, I mean, it's really interesting where we've done a survey for all of our users and asked them, you know, what would your preference be if everything was free to do a video consultation with a doctor or to securely message a doctor? And the large majority told us, like, I just want to securely message them. I think part of it is just comfort levels where, you know, if you're not really used to speaking about this, messaging can feel... yeah more comfortable. The other piece as well is privacy where, you know, if you're at home and you don't want your roommate or maybe your family hearing you, it's actually much easier to just message the doctor to be able to share with them what your concerns are. Yeah, that's, I think it's, it's so true. I think there's also like the, it could be a female thing. It could be an Asian thing, like just the, the shame and needing to ask for it and like not knowing, like who knows like how, why someone needs it because they're too, they don't want to ask their mom to take them. They don't have a mom. They don't know where else to turn. I mean, I, for a period didn't have insurance. So I went to Planned Parenthood for my birth control and it was like fine, but it was daunting to go into the facility because there is also protesters outside. So it's a, it's a tough but important step that you should, you know, part of advocating for your own health is to do that. But like, you know, the fact that you allow for secured messaging is is great. How, when it comes to, I know you can't exactly share, but like w- typically what's the, um, the age range of customers that you have? Yeah, great question. The majority of our clients are in their 20s. And then the specific age ranges actually vary state by state based on regulations. So in some states, we're able to support individuals as young as 13 and typically up to 49 years old. And then other states, if they're under 18, we might need to get parental consent first. Shine a bright on you. I want to say congrats on being named Inc. Magazine Top Female Founder. Yeah, let's put some claps up. <laughs> <laughs> How does it feel? What was it like? How did you find the news? Yeah, it felt very surreal. So I found out a few months before because they actually wanted to do a deeper dive about 28 Health and the work that we were doing. And it was also around the time where we were preparing to launch medication abortion services in California and New York. And they thought it was a very interesting story. So um, I got to talk to them a little bit more where I spoke with one of their journalists several times about it. And it was very fun doing the photo shoot. I mean, I don't know if I'll ever do anything like that again in my life, but it is very fun to be pampered for a day where we were in LA and each person had their own makeup artist and hairstylist Ooh. and 
wardrobe stylist. And wow. it was so funny. Like in between every photo, you just see like a team of people come up and like judge your hair, put some powder on, pull out every single wrinkle in your pants. I was like, oh, okay. So it really takes like a village to <laughs> look this nice. <laughs> you are a whole celeb in that photo shoot with other celebs. It was amazing. You deserve it. And also like, it's so funny to be, you know, in a photo with, celebrities like meeting Alice and Felix I was just like you're <laughs> incredible I don't understand how we are both here together when you're the Aww. most decorated track and field Olympian like athlete and Olympian of all time I was like this is incredible and everyone including her were so nice and she's just like oh hi I'm Allison and in my head I'm like I know (laughs) (laughs) I already know this did you ask for some shoes no I didn't (laughs) (laughs) I was very shy (laughs) that's so good honestly what an achievement though thank you priceless (laughs) Amy we're all very proud of the work that you've done but I kind of want to go back in time a little bit to when you were growing up as an Asian Canadian. Do you feel like growing up as you know an Asian immigrant that affected your your view on reproductive and sexual health? You know, as you started working in this space, you look back and realize how you know how little you knew or how your upbringing affected you. Yeah. So the first time I talked to my parents about reproductive and sexual health was when I told them that I started a company in reproductive oh and sexual health. <laughs> yeah, it, it's, it was never something that was talked about in my family. And it wasn't necessarily something that my parents shied away from, but it was just never a conversation topic. And I think... I felt embarrassed to ever bring anything up. So growing up, I actually got a lot more information from friends through school. And I think grew up in Canada, you, I remember like the first time they talked to us about menstruation, I think I was in grade four, like you, which is good. I think it's like good to start telling kids when they're quite young and they separated all the girls and all the boys and everyone just like giggled endlessly. (laughs) But I, I think it was helpful to be able to get a lot of that, of that information in school because I don't think it would have been something I was comfortable enough to bring up with my parents at that time. Yeah, I think my mom, when I before I went off to college, her only sentence to me was, don't get pregnant. And so in my head, I'm like, no, don't get pregnant. Not pregnant. <laughs> yeah, and I think that that's, it's honestly not enough, obviously, to know how to protect yourself why you should protect yourself. And then protecting yourself can mean so many different things. And it wasn't until Frosh Week or Orientation Week that people, you know, they were handing out condoms. And then there was a free, I don't know if you ever went at Queens, there's a free sexual health clinic or something like that. So I visited the sexual health clinic because I really had no information. And the only thing I really did to protect myself is I got the HPV vaccine. I'm proud of you. We waited till <laughs> oh, college to do it. Wow, 18. Now they're asking people to do it as, as early, I think, age nine or 10. What? Well, yeah. another time. <laughs> wow, yeah, I was 22. And it was optional, and you have to pay for it. So a lot of my friends chose not to do it. Oh, no. 
<laughs> Stephanie's upset. <laughs> well, I, I get that. I mean, like, it, it, yeah. I understand that sentiment. I think when HPV, like, prevention started rolling out, I was already in my 20s, and, mm-hmm. and they would, to your point earlier about it takes time away from work, when you're new at a job or you're young, you're the most junior person on the team and you're like, sorry, I have to go to the doctor. And then sorry, I have to come back in four weeks to go to that same doctor. No, there's something wrong with you. Nothing's wrong with me. I'm just trying to in like, you know, it's, you don't generally talk about, you know, health stuff in the workplace, right. Yeah. Let alone like feel like you can even take the time to go visit a doctor during business hours. So I can't imagine, you know, how hard it's been for people to like navigate that, let alone have to pay for it. Lord have mercy. Yeah. Like yeah. Two hundred bucks. Yeah. Two hundred bucks. Now, now it's covered. Steffi, <laughs> you bring up a good point as well, where like I think that's also maybe something that's like a a positive output of the pandemic is like I do think that one, there's so much more flexibility with certain types of white collar professions with, I think, the understanding, you know, a lot of folks now are like at least partly remote, but also I think like way more accepting of like, yeah, if you have a doctor's appointment, go do it. It doesn't matter. And I think like one thing that we try to do and encourage folks, particularly like new parents, is that like, if you want to block out your time on your calendar to breastfeed, to pump, feel free to put it there because it actually then helps to normalize it for everyone else on the team. Yeah. I think that's a great way to lead a team. I think a lot of people, they get in this like, Oh, what that might be too much. Is it fair? Am I offending someone? And then you get in this kind of analysis paralysis phase where they choose not to do anything. And, you know, I've, I've had friends who have had huge careers before they had kids and, yeah. they're they're working at big banks or big law firms and there's no pump room they're literally yeah. sitting up screens like how can you afford to have such million dollar office spaces and not have a, a yeah. room yeah. for sure it's wild well in a similar vein then if or when you have a child is there anything you want them to have more knowledge of as they grow up for me one thing, and I don't know if it's related to this topic specifically, but I want to normalize all of the problems I see my friends go through privately. And some of that is they have cysts in their ovaries. Some of that is miscarriages, you know, and I just want to make sure that kids are like, they know that these are not things to be ashamed of. And these happen to our bodies. You know, they're very natural events that could happen to you. A hundred percent. And I think like, I'm so grateful for the information I received at school, but it was still such like a high level view. And I think it's so important to be able to share more around the diversity of experiences that people can have, whether it's when you start menstruating, what does menstruation look like? How heavy does it flow? And to your point, like things like endometriosis, PCOS, fibroids, cysts, like those things are actually really common, but it's so rarely talked about that I think, unfortunately, a lot of people suffer on their own feeling like, oh, there's something wrong, but just with me. And I don't know how to communicate that to my doctor. I don't know how to ask for help in other ways. And I mean, that's partly why, for example, with endometriosis, on average, it takes a decade for someone to Mm -hmm. actually receive the diagnosis. Um, Oh my God. So I think having more information about the 
diversity of experiences Mm -hmm. of both, you know, there's a large range of what is normal. And also like, hey, when things change, like how, when should I be advocating for myself when I see my clinician? I think those things are incredibly important to make sure that particularly I think women are able to get the care that they need. Where unfortunately, historically, there is a proven implicit bias against women, against people of color of how their pain is downplayed. Yeah, I really think that is a really key point to bring out. And thank you for pointing that out to me, even like just understanding the diversity that how everyone everyone's health is different and everyone goes through things differently. It doesn't mean that there's something wrong, but like the age of, you know, when you menstruate is like the, it's such a large gap now. And like, to your point, the flow as well, like it can be really isolating when you feel like you're the only one out of your friend group that has something different. And then that definitely pushes you to be more insecure about you know, your own health. And I can, I can sense that that's what leads to less of a need to advocate for yourself because you don't, you think that there's just something wrong. Yeah, yeah. When you should be asking the questions, like, I don't know. So I need you to tell me what's normal. Is this normal? And like, how can I do something to make this better or not? I think that's always, it's always hard. You trust, you put so much trust in the doctor um, that really you should be thinking about yourself as well. And not just yeah. wait. Yeah, because I think the unfortunate piece is that doctors have such limited time with their patients, especially primary care physicians. And so I think so many doctors will love to spend more time to get to know their patients. But with the way the system is set up, it's so important also for patients to advocate for themselves and really highlight to doctors like, hey, here are things that I've noticed because these are things that might be relevant. Yeah, it's tough. I've personally gone through different life stages. Is, you know, now I'm in my mid-30s and seeing the stigma sometimes of people who are going through miscarriage, infertility, or people who don't want to have kids but feel like they're not able to share that. And also now approaching the age of like, yeah, there's some people who experience early menopause and we're almost there. And realizing for myself as someone who works in reproductive and sexual health, I'm like, whoa, there's still so much I'm learning every single day about these topics that we should have just been taught when we were in school at some point. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it, it's one of those things that you don't you don't start digging into until you're faced with it, and it should be something that you prepared for so that you can you can think about it versus like a react reactive type of way of handling it. Well, back to the roots of Taiwan. We know that Taiwan's been quite progressive, particularly with LGBTQI efforts, as well as programs, as well as just identity and like being public about it. But sexual education and reproductive health is is still relatively taboo, I'd say, amongst the culture and, and the country itself. Like, do you think there's anything that we could be doing differently? or could be pushing forward to just help the local, help the communities and and speak up a bit around that? Yeah. Yeah. That's such a great question because I've been asked previously of like, oh, like what are potential ways a 20 could go international? And so our focus is on Medicaid, which is very U.S. specific. However, I think the part that is applicable in a lot of different countries is the importance of making sure 
that whatever you're building is really in service of the individuals you're supporting and that it's culturally competent towards them. And so, for example, in Taiwan, I think it would be so important to really understand, you know, what is the language that young people are using? Where are they getting information? How do you do it in a way that feels accessible and meet them where they're at? You know, for example, we offer all of our content and our services in the U.S. in both Spanish and English. We actually run all of the content that we have through a grade reading level checker where we target for grade eight reading level, which is the average in the U.S. We're actually trying to bring that down a little bit further to just make it as accessible as possible. And I think those are really important ways of really thinking about, you know, how do we create something that people will truly engage with, that they resonate with, because I think that's a really, really important part about removing the stigma around reproductive and sexual health. Do you find that now amongst like your friends and family that given that, you know, you're the founder of 28 Health and or just in general because of recent world events or and what's happening, do you feel like you've been kind of pushing yourself to speak more about it and just like get people to feel like, they can talk about it? Yeah. I think one thing that's been really interesting for me is recently I went through the egg freezing process. And as a part of that, there's... Get it done. (laughs) Yes. Right? Um, And there's basically two weeks where you're going to feel, for some folks like myself, very hormonal and just really shitty. And then you also have to go in for the procedure and be out of commission for a couple of days. And... At first, I was a little bit reluctant about it, but I also think like, you know, being at a reproductive and sexual health company, it was much easier to tell all my colleagues I was doing that. And people were so supportive the entire time where they always checked them like, hey, how are you feeling today? Do you want to be on video? Do you want to be off video? And also telling my friends that I'm like, oh yeah, like I can't do something this weekend because I'm getting the retrieval procedure done especially guy friends. And I was honestly so impressed with the number of my guy friends who like were very well read and they're like oh yeah I hear like you know like you'll need this much time off is there anything I can do <laughs> and I think that's also part of it just like talking about it as if like yeah this is a very normal part of life whether it is to someone who might go through the procedures themselves or someone who might not because I think like normalizing it across the board just makes it all easier for us to talk about yeah it is definitely the truth I'm personally going through IVF and I will say the blessing of being in New York is almost every other person is going through something similar but what was I thought one of the hardest parts for me was to like have to talk to my dad about it I lost my mom unfortunately in 2019 and she was the person I told everything to and she would filter what would need to go to my dad yeah and my dad was the one that was like like any Asian parent, it's time you've been married. Like what's going on? Have you been, are you healthy? And apart from like saying, I'm fine. Don't remind me how old I am. I know how every woman knows how old they are. I had to be like, I'm not pregnant because I am having trouble. And it was hard for him. He would like text his friends and be like, is there something I can do? And they're just like, why don't you call, have your daughter call my daughter? And I'm just like, that's not, helpful dad <laughs> but it's a tough conversation yeah. to have with a generation where it wasn't well accepted right and yeah. I think the more we normalize it to your point the more we're willing to share our journeys about it it becomes 
better and and that it doesn't mean it's you know we're trying to get them to like change their perspective on anything I'm not asking any of that I just want them to know that like it's not easy and it's not an easy conversation it's something that I now that I've gone through it like I can only imagine what it would be like to talk to my children about it and I and I I just feel like you know now kids have so much access to information the amount of like data that comes at them on a daily basis and like you know you want them to feel like they can make an educated decision with all that receiving of information but I think it can also be overwhelming so as much as we can normalize this access to health whether it is for you know knowledge of how egg freezing works to how do I get the plan B you know it, it needs to be out Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I think that's very courageous of you to speak to your dad about because sometimes I think it's telling the people who are closest to us is what's scariest. Yeah, I mean, I didn't know how to not though. That's also like my nature is like, I can't just keep dodging the question, <laughs> and it's it's hard. And I think he was he was obviously grateful to like know, but now he's like, "Are you drinking chicken soup?" And I'm like, "Bro." <laughs> Asian dad thing or Asian parent thing to say, you know. You can't eat too much cold fruit, drink cold water. I'm like, okay, bro. <laughs> but, you know, it's 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 funny. It's I think that's kind of like why it's it's such an interesting thing to learn that, you know, coming from your background, like that you've still had the courage and this and the drive to build what you're building and Though it was the first time you talked to your parents about reproductive health, I think this is a great way to break that, that conversation. I mean, do you guys still talk about it? Like, is it kind of like a, a dinner topic? <laughs> yeah. I mean, every time we launch a new product, I'll tell my parents. And first, oh I'll have to Google, uh, how do I save this in Mandarin? Because, for example, oh. herpes treatment. I'm like, I have no idea how to say herpes in Mandarin. I don't think I've ever heard the word. I can't even remember now how to say it. But. I will tell my parents and I think every time I brace myself for them to have a negative reaction, more so just because of the generation that they're from. And every time they're like, oh, okay, yeah, that seems very important. I'm like, oh, yes, you're right. (laughs) And the latest was when we started offering medication abortion and I had never spoken to my parents about abortion and I had no idea what their personal beliefs would be related to that. So that was also a scary topic to broach, but my parents similarly were like, oh yeah, that seems like it's really important. It sounds like you're working with great doctors and it's all about getting care to folks. And they're like, yep, cool. And I was like, oh, this was way easier than I imagined. And even though that happens each time, I'm still a little bit scared each time. (laughs) Accepting of like all the new advances and rollouts that you guys have been doing it's amazing and the the translation in mandarin is awesome because you want to make sure they know exactly what you're doing so they can you know support you in that way so maybe to end it what is next for 28 health what's next on your roadmap yeah so cheer you on Thank you. Our vision is to be able to support women as they go through different life stages. So we've done a lot in terms of reproductive and sexual health that we'll want to continue to expand our offerings there. And we'll also be moving a little bit more actually into the perinatal stage. So for example, we started offering prenatal vitamins where 
most people don't know that if you get a prescription for prenatal vitamins, well, it'll be covered by insurance. Well, as someone that spends a lot of money on prenatal, I did not know that. So thank you for telling me that. Yeah, yeah. and that's across <laughs> commercial plans, Medicaid. Because it's an OTC product, people don't often mm-hmm. think of it. So that's something that we started offer. And so we'll be moving more into that realm of thinking about what are additional ways we can support women during the perinatal phase. Wow. How was that conversation for you? I really, truly feel like I'm not educated nearly enough in this topic. I'm going to start reading the sex and health section of the 28 Health website. Um, And I started looking at books too. There's this one, Period Power. Have you heard of it? Period Power? I have not. Yeah, it. Uh, that's probably the first book I'll read to sort of catch up on this. Period Power basically tells us about it's a blueprint about your periods, your hormones, so you can actually, as a woman, start to get this cycle to work for you and kind of use that to your advantage. I love that. Well, embracing your menstrual cycle, not just shying away for the three, four, five days that you don't feel great in. So love that. Thanks for sharing that. So how was the conversation for you, Steffi? You know, it was really inspiring to hear what Amy's building, particularly because of the current political climate. I mean, it's been kind of crazy the past couple of years. So I love that she's pushing the conversation and raising awareness around it. I think sometimes people forget that they can look for alternatives. They can also educate themselves on why they are or they aren't getting access. So her kind of bringing that spotlight into the forefront is is always a good thing and giving people the chance to have access. I love that she's been pushing also the stereotype for Asians about these topics being more conversational and that you can educate yourself on it and that you can really have an opportunity to learn more and not just shy away from it and be too embarrassed to talk about it or too shy to ask your doctor for certain things or to help. So I love that she puts all that educational stuff out there and giving you a chance to to really embrace it on your own. And I think this could really lead to changes in behaviors and empowering us as individuals and even as a community to push forward together and, and be more curious about our sexual health. So I love that she's She's really uh, trailblazing. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think with the Gen Z generation being completely different and with the work that she's doing now and people like her doing, I hope that next generation definitely looks different than, you know, how we grew up and what we're accustomed to. Um, just more broadly on the topic of socially conscious brands, mission-driven brands, that's something you have a lot more experience in. I'm wondering if there's any other products that you would recommend for the audience related to women's health. Yeah, there's so many great products and founders and and so many different companies out there really doing a lot. But one that kind of sticks out in my mind is a company called August. The co-founder, Nadia, is unapologetically herself when it comes to how she represents herself and the fact that they are a company that is built for selling period products. But creating a safe space to have a conversation around it and not shying away the fact that you have a period and that it should be something hidden and like you take a tampon you hide in your sleeve it's like no like these are things that happen to women and that's half the population the fact that she is breaking the stigma for periods and menstrual cycles in general is such a great power move and 
a really, to your point, what Gen Z is doing for being outspoken and willing to just who cares what anyone has to say about it? I want to talk about it anyways. Kind of attitude is, has been really great to see this in a brand and do so well and give people a platform that they can feel themselves on. Oh no. I'm someone who hides their tampons <laughs> as I go to the bathroom. So I need to check myself on that. <laughs> I mean, it's hard. It's not an easy thing to change. Yeah, for sure. And when I have a male manager and I'm not feeling well, I always kind of obscure it to a general health day. <laughs> so for sure, I think I'm learning a lot myself. So friends, if you're a woman or know of a woman, which I hope you do, <laughs> and you're based in the U.S., tell them about 28 Health because it is so easy to use. And check out August as well. Share your health journeys with us, with each other. Let's start normalizing these human experiences. Yes! <laughs> Steffi, are you ready to close it out with the motto? Taiwan. 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 Yo. <laughs>